Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world safer, freer, and more prosperous. As always, I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and I'm joined by co-host Will Duffield and special guest Liz Mayer, a political communications consultant who's worked for folks ranging from Rand Paul to the Republican National Committee, uh, though she may be perhaps best known right now as the object of Congressman Devin Nunes's ire and a $250 million lawsuit. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks for having me, but you actually undercounted the sum. There oh, are two I? lawsuits that I'm named in, and so he's actually suing me for $400 million. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Are you, are you already yeah. starting to stock away uh, your portion of the $400 million? Are you, are you ready? Yeah, I'm, defi- <laughs> I'm definitely in a position where I feel like, you know, even getting like that extra whipped cream on something at Starbucks is like potentially problematic. <laughs> so. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so I thought we'd use this as a chance to both talk about the specifics of your case uh, of this lawsuit, uh, you know, what, why you, you are the subject of $400 million worth of lawsuits, and then also use that to talk about broader conservative complaints about uh, uh, social media censorship or bias. Um, so uh, how about we start with you, Liz? Um, mm-hmm. What happened here? Like, why is Devin Nunes going after you? And I know it's not just you, but but why are you there's named? A cow involved? Yeah, as there's well. a cow for our listeners. Yeah. Yes, there. That's true. There are there are many parties involved, but I do seem to be a tie that binds. Um, so the first lawsuit, he is suing Twitter, me, my firm that I own, founded, and am president of an anonymous fake barnyard animal that purports to belong to him and somebody who is pretending to be his mother on Twitter um, or was because I think that account has been suspended. The second lawsuit, I believe he is suing McClatchy, which owns the Fresno Bee, which is his hometown newspaper, his home district newspaper and me. And I'm not sure if he has named specific reporters or the Fresno Bee in addition to McClatchy or if he's kind of just left it there. But in any event, he does seem to have a sort of wide nest that, net that he's trying to cast. Um, as to what he is suing me for, I, I really would urge people to go and take a look at what's been posted about this and what has been covered and reported on, because in all candor, um, First of all, as a defendant in the lawsuit, there's a limit to what I can comment on and playing legal analyst is not exactly the role I should be assuming here. But also, I think there seems to be quite widespread uh, agreement that people aren't totally sure what he's doing here. And so I think it's important that people go and take a look at that for themselves in order to be able to judge because you know, depending on who you ask, um, you know, people are going to say that this makes no sense or people are going to say it makes some sense. Um, You know, obviously you have some strong allies of him that think that it's, you know, it's all a perfectly good thing to be doing. Um, But I think people should go and actually take a look at it for themselves in order to judge and ascertain what they think is going on here. Uh, we'll put some links to, I think, uh, an op-ed that you wrote uh, for USA Today and an uh, interview that Reason did with you in the show notes. So for our listeners Along who want... Along with uh, Nunez's complaint, which is hosted on Scribd. Yeah. Um, right. And it's, it's a wild read. It's uh, really w- worth reading if you're interested in any kind of digital speech topics um, or you just want a, a crazy set of allegations. So why don't you give us a quick rundown of the case, Will, since uh, you are uh, – you're not named in the lawsuit yet. <laughs> so it's really it, – it feels like a 
full stack, full spectrum attack on speech rights in America. Um, not only is is Liz named in the lawsuit, who's been critical of Nunez, um, opposed his his reelection, uh, seemingly. Actually, let me just clarify that I I had no position whatsoever on his reelection. Um, he may think that that's the case, but that in fact had nothing to do with anything that I was doing. All right, um, but in addition to Liz, some anonymous critical accounts. He's also going after Twitter itself, which played plays host to a tremendous variety of Americans' political speech. Um, and effectively, he argues that critical speech on the internet caused him to perhaps win his reelection by a smaller percentage than he did last time and that this constitutes a tremendous harm to him, which should frankly be insulting to those who voted or, or didn't vote for him in, in his district because he seems to uh, claim some right to a certain number of their votes. Um, however, many aspects of this this lawsuit are again just, just sort of wild but implicate the way in which people speak about politics on the internet today. Um, there are specific fighting words complaints. Traditionally, the doctrine of fighting words has been incredibly limited to situations, usually in person, in which some utterance by a party might provoke immediate violence. How this can be applied to internet communication in which folks certainly aren't within striking distance of one another and may not even know who each other are um, seems very troubling. Um, as well, there are claims which would seem to cut against the usual way in which we view intermediary liability protections vis-a-vis -vis Twitter and other sites that host user speech. Um, he argues or the complaint alleges that Twitter is responsible for the development of criticism of him uh, citing a, a roommates.com uh, precedent, an old case in which uh, certain features of roommates.com, which allowed users to say search by race or uh, other protected classes, um, was seen as rendering roommates.com responsible or contributing to these ADA violations. However, this isn't, isn't how Twitter works at all. There's no prompt box saying, be nasty to Devin Nunez. Um, so in, instead, there's got to be some other reason for this. Um, and it feels like a fishing expedition. Yeah. Well, and without commenting on the, the you know, particular legal arguments, I mean, it, for our listeners who, who are unaware, it's, it's a, there was a series of each of the people who are named um, was involved in speech that was critical of Nunez, whether it was for directly about his reelection or not. Like the Fresno Bee, who is named, ran a story about a winery that um, Nunez was invested in holding like a, a sex and booze and drugs fueled uh, orgy on a yacht. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. But it's standard journalism. You know, they had journalists go and track down, you know, the uh, 
eyewitness sources and and it, it was investigative journalism so which Nunez didn't appreciate uh, being the the subject or, or impl- implicated, I guess he wasn't actually involved directly in the story, but he is a owner of the vineyard. Or, or Liz, in your case, uh, you created something called the Swamp Accountability Project. Uh, right, that's were, my client. Mm-hmm. That was your client, and you you did a thing involving running shoes. And is that the thing that kind of initially sparked the ire, or was it? Some, why did you I... get implicated in this? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I It's hard for me to speculate on where this is coming from. Obviously, I don't live in Devin Nunes' brain. I'm sure it's an interesting <laughs> place and probably worth exploring, but I, I don't have access to, to sort of his thinking on this. Um, what I will say is that, you know, everything that he seems to be upset about happened quite some time ago now. And I really don't know what's spurring him to be upset about it now that we're into like April 2019. I mean, the running shoes that was delivered when we were still like, you know, in the midst of the DC summer heat, I remember because I was walking around the Capitol building and the air conditioning wasn't that great. Um, You know, so that's obviously some time ago, Uh, you know, like his staff were very friendly to me, um, both before and after I delivered the shoes, which I think is interesting. Um, But, you you know, give him a free pair of shoes. (laughs) They're actually really good running shoes. I mean, look, you know, I don't want to get into substance of things that may come up in court here. But like I, I did research the shoes. I researched the shoe size. I'm a runner. Uh, as I said in the video, I'm not a particularly good runner, but I think it's important to have good shoes. And, you know, I didn't buy him like, you know, some $20 stuff that came from, you know, I don't know, like, you know, the bargain basement discount mat, like rack at whatever discount shoe shop. I mean, you know, they're good shoes. Um, but I think, you know, from my standpoint, when we get back to the question about what is this all really about? I mean, he obviously has his motivations and whatever he is head up about. But from my perspective, and I think from the American public at largest perspective, what this lawsuit is about is fundamentally about free speech. This is about the First Amendment. And in this case, we have somebody who is a sitting government official, a sitting member of the United States government who is using litigation as a cudgel to try to stifle my free speech and other people's free speech and to silence them. And I think, you know, for people who listen to this podcast and who read Reason, um, you know, I think people are going to be particularly familiar, people who, are, who donate to Cato. I think people in that, in that realm are going to be especially familiar with how we got the First Amendment and why we got the First Amendment. And if you go back and you look at Madison's comments on the First Amendment, it's very clear that he was saying that in his view, the purpose of the First Amendment was to ensure that censorial power did not rest with the government, but rather that people were able to use free speech as a check on government and to hold their officials accountable, which is exactly what I do with a good portion of my Twitter feed that's not devoted to things like premiership football on a day-to-day basis, Um, although that's also an exercise of free speech. Um, You know, and probably, frankly, many of the things that I tweet about that are far more controversial than anything that I tweet about politics. Um, But that's really what this is about. This is a free speech case. And, you know, as to what his motivations may be, uh, it's hard for me to speculate. I probably shouldn't speculate. I will say, though, that for, for listeners to this, though, I would say, you know, go take a look at the guy's record, because not only is it clear here that he has a very, very different reading of applicable law, including the First Amendment to what I do, but in addition to that, 
this guy doesn't have probably, I would say, the, the general view on civil liberties writ large that just about anybody listening to this podcast will. And I think that probably does play some role here. Well, regardless of his, his mentality going into it, the effect of a lawsuit like this is to turn the litigation process into a punishment in of itself. You're having to waste your time defending yourself against this. You've got to come and talk to us and others rather than running or whatever else you might be doing. Um, and for those, though, th though, thanks for saving me from the leg cramps. I mean, I will say that you know, there's there's a silver lining in everything, really, isn't there? But yes, and and your business is politics. You spoke about him publicly, but. For the others who uh, whoever's running this cow account, the Devon's mom account, they're anonymous, and that anonymity allowed them to participate in the political process without necessarily dragging the rest of their lives into it. However, this lawsuit seeks to unmask these people, and if it gets through or through the discovery process, even if it fails in the end, they may suffer harms as a result of being revealed to have run these accounts. And bear in, we should bear in mind that the Federalist Papers were written yeah. anonymously, right? Like anonymous political speech is in the DNA, the political DNA of our nation. I, I was about to make that exact point. I mean, I, it's it's really hard for me to understand how this is consistent with our history and with Publius, right? Um, I mean, on one level, I'm hesitant to compare anonymous authors of the Federalist Papers to a fake internet cow because, you know, obviously those two things in some respects are not alike. But yes, I mean, I think I think that's right. Free speech is there's a reason that that's in the First Amendment, not like the 25th Amendment. It's because it was that important. And we do have a history of engaging in an anonymous political speech in this country, and it really is core to our nation's founding. So while I'm happy to put my name on things that I say, I mean, yeah, I don't know what the effect of this will be on, you know, Devin Nunez's cow or Devin Nunez's mom or, you know, the proliferation of various animals that have now occurred. I mean, I, the other day I saw Devin Nunez's warthog on Twitter. I mean, when we've gotten to the point where we're running into warthog territory, I feel like he, he's probably going to have to sue a lot more people. And, and while the, the Federalist Papers uh, might be a bit far from an anonymous cow, uh, Benjamin Franklin used the persona Alice Addertongue, which is a little, little animalistic, to say <laughs> uh, or criticize the Pennsylvania government long before the revolution. Um, at one point, he writes... Whoever pursues my writings after my death may happen to think that during a certain term, the people of Pennsylvania chose into their offices of honor and trust the various knaves, fools, and rascals in the whole province. Seems like something someone might use one of these accounts for today. Um, so there is a real lineage to this, and it is core to our political tradition of free speech. So, Will, what do we do? Like, So it's a problem when someone has both the resources, the financial resources and the clout. They can hire a bunch of lawyers, sick them on. I mean, so even if it's a, a frivolous lawsuit that might get thrown out in court, it's going to tie folks up with less resources, less means, less access in court for a long period of time. I mean, it has a chilling effect even if it doesn't ultimately work. What do we do about that? 
Well, some states have passed what are called anti-slap laws. SLAP in this case is an acronym which stands for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. So anti-slap is designed to prevent people from litigating strategically to prevent others from speaking. Unfortunately, Virginia still has a relatively weak anti-slap law. It's got a kind of constructive knowledge standard which uh, really prevents it from being used effectively. So the House of Delegates could, could update that as uh, the legislature in Tennessee has just updated theirs so unanimously. Why, is, why does it matter that in Virginia, it's, there's a weak slap law? Well, without a slap law, the defendants in the litigation have to still go through that discovery process in most cases, whereas an anti-slap law would provide for a separate hearing on the constitutionality of the speech in question before you even got to discovery, which is often the most expensive part of all of this. So the judge can throw it out before discovery if he finds it meets this, you know, anti-slap criteria. And then my understanding and is- And save everyone a lot of money. Do they? And they can also- something about dam, uh, not damages, court costs. Sometimes too. there's a court cost element as well. Um, and we're starting to see in some cases attempts at creating anti-slap laws designed specifically to prevent anonymous speakers from being revealed through this process. Ohio tried to pass one last year. Uh, we'll see how that movement goes, but that seems increasingly important as we speak online more and more. So in Virginia, it was, where was the lawsuit? Where was the lawsuit against you, Liz, filed? Is it a Virginia? It's filed in Virginia, okay. and um, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to play sort of sure. legal commentator here, but I do think that's, I do think that's interesting because, well, I don't know who the cow or the mom are. To my knowledge, I mean, I'm sitting here in San Francisco right now. I'm pretty sure this is where Twitter is headquartered. Um, obviously, the Fresno Bee is in yeah. Fresno. Yeah. <laughs> um, Devin Nunes uh, represents a district in California. He probably doesn't spend that much time in it, but you know, I mean, it's on the West Coast. He works in D.C. Um, but yeah, I I am the person who has the Virginia tie. And unless the cow and the mom are also Virginians, I think I'm the only one who does. And I kind of my impression, while I don't know who the cow or the mom are, my impression is that they're pissed off constituents of his. So they're coming at this from a different place. I, I may be wrong about that. That's just my my sort of opinion. But, um, you know, so I think those are those are sort of other interesting tidbits here. I, I should note in full disclosure, I retweeted and followed the Devin Nunes cow parody account uh, back, you know, when this case kind of broke uh, in, in a personal protest at the attempt to stifle uh, parodic speech. So I am not a completely disinterested observer. I, I follow Devin's Devin Nunes's cow. Um, but I think it, it points us towards. So there are formal remedies that we just described, you know, slap legislation and wanting to spread that to states uh, so that litigants can't shop to the district that is most amenable to their, you know, uh, to a potential intimidation effect. Um, but there's also something informal that we're already seeing happen, which is uh, what's known as the Streisand effect online. Um, and that is when an attempt to stifle speech actually draws more attention to the offensive speech that the that the person finds, you know, uh, personally harming or, or insulting. So the, it's named after Barbara Streisand, who uh, there was a, 
a uh, kind of like a freelance journalist who put together a thing called the California Coastal Records Project um, that had pictures of all like all along the California coastline. And one of those pictures showed Barbara Streisand's uh, mansion. So it's like a clifftop mansion over the beach. And now the purpose of this project is to was to help document um, coastline decay uh, so that researchers could use it for you know, like public policy purposes. Um, and it's not a thing that attracted lots of attention. I think six people had viewed the a photo of her home prior to the scandal. She didn't want people having access to that. And so two of those views were her lawyers who looked at the photo and filed a $50 million claim against the offending journalist, wanting him to take down that photo. Well, but the, the irony was, was that the internet community said, what are you doing? You're intimidating someone who's publishing is it's public record like there's you have no right to prevent people from off your property fo taking a picture of your property from you know from from a public vantage point and uh so the backlash meant that that photo got shared millions of times millions more people saw that than had seen the photo as a backlash to this frivolous lawsuit this attempt at intimidation and you, you see that happening now like devin nunez's cow had i don't know a few dozen a few hundred followers it was not a large account. Uh, when I signed on, they had a quarter of a million and counting. And now it's at least 2x Devin himself. Yeah, right. It's got more so, followers so than Devin. Beyond you know your unfortunate implication in all of this, um, how do you think this affects public perceptions of, of Nunez? How have others across the political spectrum been responding to this? Um, has, it, has it helped him at all? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not on the inside of his office, so clearly I'm not privy to a whole range of conversations that would able, enable me to assess this. But if I were his communication strategist, I would tell him that this is a total own goal to use soccer speak. Um, I mean, you've succeeded. He succeeded in bumping my Twitter followers, sadly, not nearly as much as the cow. I mean, I'm headed into Easter and I'm supposed to be in Lent and I'm sitting here being envious of a fake <laughs> barnyard animal on the Internet, which is obviously something I'm going to have to spend some time working through. Um, but, you know, he succeeded in bumping my Twitter followers. I mean, I think that they're about 10,000 higher than what they were before all of this. Obviously, the cow has been a primary beneficiary here. Um, you know, I, I query on one level. I mean, if he if he really does think he sustained reputational damage, I mean, it kind of seems like the reason he sustained a lot of that is probably because of his own actions, not anything else that was done. I mean, he basically has taken something that I seriously doubt that very many people read in the first place. And, you know, between that and other tactics he's used, he's basically like, you know, broadcasted out with like bazillions of billboards effectively all over the universe. And so as a communication strategist, I mean, if I were advising him, I would I would tell him that this has not been a productive exercise and probably more of this would not be a good idea. Um, however, I will also say from my standpoint, I fully expect that there are going to be more lawsuits coming. I mean, when he initially announced the first one, I believe he made the comment that he was intending to drop one of these once every two to three weeks. Um, you know, there was about a three week gap between the first and second one. So I kind of anticipate on that basis that next Monday or the Monday after there will be another one. Um, Lord knows what that'll be. Maybe he'll be suing the plethora of Devon animals that seem to have proliferated. Um, you know, as I said, you now have Devin Nunez's aardvark out there. I think last time I took a look 
there were several goat related accounts, several alpaca, llama, maybe even a vicuña account, which I thought was particularly novel. Um, yeah, I mean, anything that is a farm animal, basically, they, there are a few of those that are Devin Nunes related now. Um, and then you've also got things like, you know, I, I feel like I saw like Devin Nunes's cow's mom's lawyer or whatever. I mean, so I, I don't know. I mean, if this is something that's of, a, of concern to him, I feel like he's going to end up having to file quite a large number of these things because it's just succeeded in drawing attention and turning it into something that I think a lot of people think is just like a massive internet joke. I mean, clearly he doesn't find it funny, but apparently a lot of other people do. So, And, and beyond making himself look silly, he's also to some extent beclowned the concern that conservatives are being treated poorly by tech firms. Um, in this suit, he hopes out of it not only to somehow punish Twitter monetarily um, for hosting this speech, but also to encourage it to be much more hostile towards political argument on its platform and in fact ban you, a conservative communications worker, forever from the platform, um, which sounds like it might uh, – that that's anti-conservative bias right there. It would lock some of that – what conservatives are most concerned about with regard to content moderation into the platform while discouraging anonymous individuals from, from making use of it. Yeah, there's a certain degree of cognitive dissonance here where it's on the one hand, he doesn't want accounts like Nunez's cow or your account, Liz. Uh, there's specific kinds of political speech that he doesn't believe belong on Twitter. But then he's also trying to tap into conservative complaints about, well, what's been called shadow banning, but we don't prefer that terminology, but uh, accusations of, of you know, uh, censorship against conservative voices. So on the one hand, he wants some accounts banned, but then other accounts protected. There's no doesn't seem to be a real consistent standard, but it would explain – uh, possibly explain the number of lawsuits being filed. This is tapping into this a broader sense of distrust among uh, conservative voters um, about the idea that big tech is out to get conservative voices online. So as someone who uses these platforms for your work as a conservative, how do you approach these kinds of claims, these concerns? I know that specific shadow banning claim in the lawsuit largely relates to a search auto-populate bug from last July that affected everyone from Republican congressmen to the Chapo Trap House crew. Um, well, you know, first of all, just jumping back to the previous point that was made, I mean, I'm sure that we're all really shocked to know that any politician in Washington, D.C. is displaying signs of inconsistency, right? Because that never <laughs> happens. Um, you know, let me just be clear, lest another lawsuit be coming my way. That's not me singling out Devin Nunes for criticism. There are like 535 of them. And with a few limited exceptions, I'd say they're all subject to the same criticism. So all I'm saying is politicians are politicians. But, you know, on the shadow banning front, that's something that's been a little bit hard for me to comment on because I haven't personally experienced, at least not to my knowledge, anything that falls into that category I also will say, though, that perhaps the reason that I haven't spotted any trends like that is if you look at my Twitter feed, which is at Liz Mayer, L-I-Z-M-A-I-R, 
um, you will notice that I'm probably one of the most discriminatory people on Twitter myself. I follow virtually no one and I have a lot of followers proportionate to, I think I follow like 300 or 400 people and I have like 45,000 followers. So clearly I'm not going in and using any search functions in order to identify accounts to follow because I am obviously just some sort of a hater when it comes to following other people on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, there are good reasons that technology companies obviously should be concerned about this and should be watching what happens here because the implications for them are very serious. Personally, I'm much more concerned about the implications on individual free speech because at the end of the day, in the kind of democracy that we have, it is the responsibility of citizens to hold our government officials accountable. And that is a way that we do it. That is the fundamental way that we do it, which I think is you know, why you've seen people across the board be very reluctant to mess around with free speech rights, because they understand that you know, that's something that is advantageous and beneficial to our democratic system as a whole. Um, but yeah, certainly I think tech companies are going to be watching this. You know, I think there have been a lot of discussions that I've seen about implicit bias at tech companies where it's not like anything explicit is going on. It's just that, you know, whoever's doing the coding, there are certain things that they think of that other people would think of. Perhaps that's an issue. I'm sure there's going to be lots more investigation by the media on that. Um, you know, personally, I guess I, I would say that as somebody who's curious about that, I, I would certainly hope that the effect of this lawsuit isn't to stifle free speech in such a way that those investigations cannot proceed. Um, because realistically, when you do start infringing on the First Amendment, it has very dire consequences that are oftentimes extremely unforeseen at the time. Yeah, that's that's a always a good point. I mean, we are free speech absolutists uh, here at Building Tomorrow and at Cato, I, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, well, actually, while we still have you on the on the line, Liz, uh, we were thinking. So you've been doing political communications um, for for quite some time. My understanding is like since the mid two thousands, at least. You were you know communications consultant with the Republican National Convention uh, back in the day. Um, how has like so your career spans the transition towards a more like the importance of online social media for political campaigns. Um, I mean, back in the mid 2000s, that's still just I mean, I remember 2008 was considered revelatory when Barack Obama used uh, various forms of social media as part of his campaign effort, uh, stuff that feels old hat now. But you've seen all of that. Like what, what have been the biggest changes that you've seen on the ground as a communications consultant with this brave new world of online social media and politics? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, when I actually started in politics, it was in London and I was doing stuff for the Conservative Party. And that was really around the time that David Cameron took over. And one of the things that David Cameron was adamant about was leveraging tech and digital to the maximum degree possible. And so, you know, I sort of came from an environment in which digital was really heavily emphasized. Then I moved back to America and I was like, wow, people really don't emphasize this here. That's very strange. Um, but, you know, I did start my career as a blogger, um, and so I was part of the media, but also, you know, with a partisan and ideological slant. And then, as you say, I went to the Republican National Committee, and I was their first and I think to date only online communications director. So, you know, in 2008, everything was very focused on blogs, um, and that was one area where I handled that, and we totally dusted the Obama campaign and the DNC's butt, and they will totally admit that if you ask them that. Um, the McCain campaign and the RNC were infinitely better on that. Um, we were exploring, and they were exploring with social media. Um, I was on Twitter at the time. I believe I was the first presidential campaign surrogate 
because uh, no presidential candidates participated in this, but I was the first person to do a presidential campaign debate on Twitter with Mike Nelson representing the Obama campaign. And it was on tech policy topics and it was during the Personal Democracy Forum and it was moderated by Personal Democracy Forum folks and I think Anna Marie Cox. And we did that and that was like totally revelatory and groundbreaking. And now it's like, you know, your mom is on Twitter tweeting happy Valentine's Day or whatever, right? Like at the time, Facebook was very innovative and it was all like young people and techies. And now it's like your grandma. I mean, (laughs) everybody... So, yeah, so obviously things have changed a great deal. Um, You know, I think when you look at campaigns specifically, there's always the ongoing debate about how do you split the digital spend versus the TV and the radio spend and the traditional media spend. Um, I think most people who work in digital politics would tell you that they're still unhappy about that division. I think most of them would also tell you that, honestly, they probably do think there's a correlation between what looks like shadow banning or conservatives not performing as well in social media and the way that that money is divided because candidly in the Republican party, um, and I'm sure democratic strategists would say this true, but I think it's especially true in the Democrat in the Republican party. We do have a tendency to take a lot of budget and keep throwing it at things like let's just run ads during ABC news, like nightly <laughs> news at 6 PM yeah. rather than doing things that are really micro targeted, whether you're talking about TV or whether you're talking about leveraging social media and digital. Um, and you know, I will personally say like, I don't do, a lot of social media advertising, but the couple times that I have, I mean, it makes a really big difference in terms of the numbers that you're seeing. Um, so, you know, that's that's a sort of an overview of how I think things have changed and then also how far I think things have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, certainly if you look at like, you know, what the Bernie Sanders campaign was doing in 2016, I mean, online was heavy for them. Frankly, it was for Trump too. Yeah. I mean, Facebook was a massive asset for the Trump campaign and other Republican candidates really didn't devote enough attention to it. And I think that's a, that's, you know, that's an untold story about how he won. We talk a lot about, you know, these Facebook pages that were obviously set up by Russian trolls or whatever, and we're sharing stupid memes that, I don't know, possibly swung like 50 votes in Michigan or what have you. Um, but the real the really interesting story about 2016 is that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, the two candidates, the people were like at the outset, they were like, these people are jokers. There's no way those people actually did very effectively leverage social media directly themselves and it benefited them. So, you know, I would say as a campaign strategist, if, if anybody is considering running for office and listening to that, take a lesson from that. Like it's not it's not stuff that I mean, there's a lot you can do organically to build your following and disseminate messages. And God knows that Donald Trump did by virtue of having a platform already at The Apprentice. But there there is a need to be more strategic about that and really focus attention on it and not just do like the sort of standard suite of campaign advertising on TV. You've come from a a background in UK politics. They have very different rules regarding online speech there that are getting worse all the time. Um, yeah. Does that concern you at all as someone who uses these services in America? In many cases, rule changes abroad or legal changes abroad will force platform rule changes that may apply more universally. Um, it often seems like conservatives are focusing on Uh, domestic bias concerns rather than looking at how community standards are shaped by, in many cases, European law. 
Well, I think that's true. I'm also, I would also just stipulate like as a British citizen and somebody who has some pretty strong feelings about Jeremy Corbyn in particular, who used to be my MP. Yeah. I mean, I do need to pay attention to that because, um, I mean, if Devin Nunes thinks I say mean things about him, he should hear what I say about Jeremy Corbyn. Right (laughs) now, in my opinion, Jeremy Corbyn totally deserves it, but that's a separate standard. Um, yes. I mean, right now, obviously they're talking about putting further limitations and further requirements on social media companies. I mean, yes, I do have a concern that obviously, and we don't just see this with regard to technology regulation, but we see this with regard to financial services and a whole range of other, we even see it with tobacco. What is done in one place, if it's done in the U.S., eventually it creeps over into the EU. And if it's done in the EU, it eventually creeps over into the U.S. There are people who think that that will change with Brexit. First of all, I have no idea what's going on with Brexit, and I don't believe anybody on the face of the planet actually does, including the people sitting in the negotiating room. So I would discount that. But also, I just don't think that that trend is going to change because, in general, people who like regulation are all the shopping around for the best regulatory proposal that made it over the finish line, and then they want to implement it everywhere. So that does concern me. The other thing that concerns me about this that is a little bit sort of deviating from what we've mainly been talking about, but... You know, we did have a couple of years ago, Theresa May was proposing some pretty serious um, mandates really on social media with regard to anything that could be linked to terrorism. And, you know, having been on in London on 7-7, um, frankly, having had my husband in an office building that I suspected was going to blow up in front of my face live on TV, I'm sympathetic to those concerns. However, One of the things that is a big concern to me with regard to some of these efforts when you're talking about things like actual terrorism and people inciting that is if these things are online, well, I don't want to be looking at them and I don't want them influencing people. It does actually enable intelligence services to better track people and figure out what they're doing as recruitment tools. When you kind of push it all underground, that job gets a lot harder. And then from a sort of national security standpoint, when you're thinking not about people just being a-holes on the Internet, as, you know, everybody is on the Internet, um, but when you're actually thinking about people potentially plotting to blow up a bunch of tube trains, for example, my suspicion is that if you're an intelligence officer, those kinds of rules go through and you're like, she just made my my life harder. Um, so, so I think I think there are a lot of problems with these kinds of proposals. Uh, pushing people onto or terrorists onto private encrypted messaging is is unhelpful, and uh, these shortened takedown windows as well for what could be terrorist content increasingly then lead to just the a holes being taken down as well. And it, and it also can divert resources from things that I would say are, are actually more important. I mean, I'm somebody who's a big proponent of intellectual property rights. So, you know, to me, if you're sort of getting into a position where you're doing like takedowns of anything that's deemed offensive speech or potentially could read as incitement or whatever, um, in addition to taking that away as a, as a useful tool, there are also things that are like straight up illegal, like video and music piracy that go on all the time on the Internet. And, like, you know, I mean, honestly, like if you're under all these mandates, what what attention are you going to devote to that? Um, you know, and I'm not saying that we should be prioritizing 
the integrity of Prince videos on YouTube over combating terrorism. But I think at the end of the day, there are always manpower issues. And so you have to think about all of those things when you're regulating. Yeah, we we did an episode with uh, Mike Masnick of Tech Dirt about the EU copyright, digital copyright rules and the unintended consequences Mm -hmm. for intellectual property in in Europe. So that's a that's a whole thing we could have another conversation about. But uh, I wanted to say, Liz, thanks for coming on the show for for time's sake. We better close things off here, but appreciate you taking the time um, and do let us know if uh, you find out that Jeremy Corbyn's cow starts a Twitter account. Uh, We'd be we'd be happy to hear any updates in that regard. Regard. But uh, th- th- thank you for your time, Liz. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.